Life can turn on a dime in a matter of seconds. A single moment has the power to change our entire known existence, to propel us down a path we never expected, never saw coming, and have no idea where it is leading. One moment, all is well. The next moment, that something happens. And when the unfathomable strikes, it can set off a primal response within us that no one will ever be able to explain. Those who have felt it or have seen it, know it. They trust it. It's more than a foreboding, it's a foreknowledge. Deep within a mother's breaking heart, the pathology is irrelevant. She just knows, she felt it. No scientific pathology will ever be sufficient to describe the internal process of her response. When a child is lost, however inexplicably, a mother just knows. Welcome back to Fitz Files, your new home for true crime and corruption, wherever you download podcasts. I'm your host, founding editor Will Folks of FitzNews.com. Last week, our team held a roundtable discussion on the Rose Petal murder, which we focused on exclusively during the first six episodes of this show. If you're listening today looking for more on this story, stay tuned. There is so much more to come as we prepare for the early 2024 murder trial of accused killer Zach Hughes. Be on the lookout for multiple additional episodes related to this case as it makes its way through the justice system. This week, though, we are proud to present the first episode of Death on the Tracks, the story of Daniel Reed D.J. Smith of Dorchester County, South Carolina. This is the story of a mother's premonition a mysterious death, and a family demanding answers. More than that, as Jen just mentioned, it's a story about that moment life turns on a dime, a moment that can happen anywhere, anytime, to any of us. This was as normal a day as any other in the Melendez house. Filled with the usual family activities, there was nothing to suggest the sense of peace and familiarity which permeated the humid midsummer air would be interrupted. Making their way home after a casual outing on August 11, 2018, Lisa and Eric settled in and did something rather routine. They turned on the police scanner. Eric was an investigator with the South Carolina First Circuit Solicitor's Office, and it was his and Lisa's custom to listen to the scanner in the evenings as they relaxed. You might say the rhythmic and predictable chatter of an uneventful evening was a source of comfort for the law enforcement family, a sign everything was all right. But familiar sounds were not on the playlist for this particular evening, which was about to become the furthest thing from peaceful. The sound that broke through the mundane gripped Lisa's heart mercilessly. Even though she couldn't say how or why, in a moment of absolute clarity, she felt the sudden absence of her son with every part of her being. So the day DJ died, can you tell me about Um, that was Saturday. We had went to the mall and went to, um, 
wild wings. Anyway, we ate and we went home. And um, I picked up the radio. You know, he was working for the solicitor's office at the time, for David Pascoe. And I picked up the radio and sat it down on the coffee table. And um, I kind of laid down on the couch that I really don't use. We don't use that couch. You know, it's in the den. And so, um, so the first thing that came out across the radio was there was a body found on the tracks. And um, my heart literally left my chest and came back like a rubber band. And that's that's all they said. And yeah, and it just hurt so bad. And I told him, I said, pray for this family. And he said, hang on, I'll be right back. And walked in the bedroom, came back. And I said, no, I mean this family, our family. And he said, why do you say that? I said, that was DJ. That was my son. He said, no, it wasn't. Why would you say that? He would never be there. I said, I don't know, but it was. I said, my heart just hurt. And it was him. I knew not to call him. He wasn't going to answer. He couldn't answer. The words that came across the scanner were vague. Officers were being summoned to a crime scene near Jetburg, South Carolina, where a body had been found on the railroad tracks. A body. It was no more specific than that. Yet while she could not explain how or why, Lisa, in a moment which defies all logic, immediately and intuitively knew the body was that of her son, Daniel Reed Smith, the boy she raised, the boy with the contagious smile, who now had a son of his own with his own contagious smile, was dead. That smile, which had lit up rooms for nearly three decades, was gone. Her husband, the seasoned investigator, encouraged her to reconsider, to not jump to conclusions, to believe the scanner was, in all likelihood, speaking of a stranger. He told her to have faith that whatever it was, there was no reason to think the worst. Not yet. So she tried. So, um, I don't, I must have dozed off for like, I don't know, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. I remember kind of dozing in and out and I smelled coffee. That's when I jumped up and went to him and I said, where's the coroner? They're not here. Eric, DJ's stepfather, started making calls. He knew the people who were responding to the scene. If nothing else, he intended to put his wife's mind at ease. But the responses he received were anything but reassuring. And not because of what was said. It was the absence of information that was most alarming. The few carefully parsed words that were shared sparsely fell along the lines of officers saying they were still processing the scene. Those were the words that members of law enforcement use when talking to civilians, not at all the candid and uncensored words they use when speaking to each other. Realizing this, an inevitable truth began to dawn on Eric. She wasn't letting it go. I mean, she I knew. she was adamant, you know, she wanted me to call, you know, like she said, I, you know, I, it was the furthest thing. I tried to tell her that, you know, that. It's not him. 
And, you know, I hate to say, you know, it's a woman's intuition. I, I don't know what what gave her that thought that it was him. Uh, but I tried to do all that I could the night before that it's not him. Don't, you know, you're worrying yourself over nothing. And the next morning she was right back at it, you know, wanting me to call. And, you know, out of respect for her and, you know, she was really, she wasn't going to let it go. I called. You know, um, and it really wasn't any of my business, um, you know, because I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't work for the, either one of those agencies, but I called just to see, give him his name and find out if it was him. And um, in reality, you know, she was right. She was right all along and, uh, you know, truly, you know, it was him. You know, I couldn't believe it 40 minutes later. Um, you know, I had my doubts when they wouldn't tell me who it was, uh, and they have a right not to tell me, but I knew then that there was more to it. Eric and Lisa were left in the unenviable position of waiting for that dreaded knock on the door. The agonizing certainty that formal notification was imminent took hold over them, hovering like a cloud of doom. There was nothing they could do, nothing but wait. When officials from the coroner's office pulled into their driveway the following morning, Eric met them outside and received the news. It was exactly as Lisa said. They were only confirming the truth that her heart had detected many hours before from those few vague words on the police scanner. Overwhelmed by the moment, Lisa doesn't remember anything after seeing them walking up the drive until Eric pulled her up from the bathroom floor and coaxed her into the living room where the officials were waiting to speak to her. And then I remember I was in the bathroom. He came and told me I had to come out there. They had to talk to me. I said, I do not need them to tell me what I already know. And he said, no, they have to talk to you. And my first question was was he shot and then I don't I don't know after that what did they what do you remember them telling you when they arrived you know uh, you know I kind of uh, lost my composure too uh, and I still do today you know because um, you know, Keith Elmore and I, we were detectives together. It's hard for me to talk about it uh, because of him. Uh, you know, we were, he was like a brother. You know, we were like brothers from another mother. Uh, and, uh, you know, he and I kicked a lot of doors together and um, we had each other's back many, many days. Um, and, uh, you know, he had since moved to the coroner's office, and he was a deputy coroner under the coroner himself in Dorchester County. Um, and uh, while we still communicated and stuff like that, we were still close. Uh, I, I, I knew, uh, you know, I just remember him tell me, you know, tell me it wasn't him, man. You know, and you know, he just hugged me, and uh, you know, it's what it is. Uh, but. I don't remember much about that day other than him just hugging me, you know. And he knew, and I knew, and, uh, you know, it's a sad day. <clears throat> and I feel bad for my wife, you know, right. then, because um, that was her son. And, 
So, you know, it was like kind of the beginning of the beginning of, you know, our lives, you know, uh, you know, to find out what happened to him, you know. With the tragic news now officially in hand, with her innate sense of loss now confirmed in black and white on the paperwork the coroner's office handed her, Lisa was now confronted by a vast void of information about what had actually happened to DJ. When she asked if he had been shot, she was told details wouldn't be known until an autopsy was performed. What she was told was concerning, chilling even, and cause for confusion considering law enforcement's initial assessments of the crime scene lacked even the most basic supporting information. As incomplete answers surfaced in the months ahead, they resembled the scattered pieces of a puzzle with no box to guide them. Nothing more than random glimpses of truth, too few to connect, failing to provide even a partial picture. If you've ever tried solving a jigsaw puzzle that is missing pieces without the box and without that picture on the front of the box to use as a reference for the end result, you may be able to imagine the situation confronting Lisa and Eric Melendez. And if you gather the flat edge pieces and join them together to construct a border, while the picture within remains a mystery, there is some sense of defining the outcome. But even that outlying border raises more questions than it answers. They said that it looked like he had been killed and placed on the tracks, and they had found two shells. I remember that part. Without providing any of the evidence that led them to this conclusion, officials from the coroner's office told Lisa and Eric it appeared as though DJ had been killed and his body placed on the train tracks. Killed? But how? By whom? And for what? Lisa and Eric already knew something was horribly amiss, but the reality that someone could have taken DJ's life from him hit even harder than the initial news of his death. Lisa's son, the boy with the infectious grin who loved to joke and make people laugh, was known to his friends and family as DJ. Daniel Reed Smith was her middle child, the only boy in a trio of close-knit siblings. He was the first boy, um, the only boy, and his sister was two years and 25 minutes younger than him. Um, and his older sister was two years and a month older than him. Okay. So um, they were all very close. But mostly he liked to pick. He, he loved to make people laugh. Um, please, people, do things, do, do whatever he needed to do to make sure everybody was happy. Um, I don't know. He was just... He was just the life of the party. DJ was also a father, and that was a role that he cherished. I interviewed Lisa, and I asked her about DJ and his relationship with his son. How old was his son when he died? Eight. Eight. <laughs> and he was really close to his son. He loved his baby. Yep. 
they went fishing together. Fishing, riding bikes. It, he, ta- he talks about that all the time, how he misses his daddy. Running, racing him down the road because his daddy had the long legs. He said, but sometimes I could still beat him. Yeah, he misses him. Yes, they did everything together. Now that the boy is a little older, he too has questions about what happened to his dad. These questions are difficult enough to answer when details are known. Absent such clarity, they are impossible to answer. Lisa and Eric are trying, though. In mourning their loved one, this family has not had the benefit of information that would help explain what happened to him. The most basic of questions remain unanswered. But where many families would simply give up or blindly accept what officials told them, this family dug deeper. And when that failed to give up the truth, they kept digging. Here are the first puzzle pieces Lisa and Eric found. 29-year-old DJ Smith was with friends on that last night, August 10, 2018, at their Ridgeville, South Carolina home. There was a party with a bonfire. DJ arrived at the gathering with a friend named Trevor McGee sometime between 9 and 10 o'clock p.m. DJ appeared to keep his distance from the other partygoers and spent much of the evening on his phone, according to witnesses. Police were able to confirm this by reviewing his cell records. The details of what happened that night are a mystery, though, in large part because accounts vary wildly from one partygoer to the next. When Dorchester County detectives began to investigate the cases of murder nine days later, they started by interviewing these same partygoers, receiving contradictory, conflicting accounts. The gathering was held at a home rented by Catherine Boyd and Ashley Adams, who both said DJ didn't seem like himself that night. Everything else police were told about the events leading up to DJ's death and the subsequent discovery of his body on the railroad tracks was convoluted and inconsistent. But why? How is it that these so-called friends were so unreliable in the aftermath of DJ's death? Were they so unaffected by this tragedy, they didn't even bother to think of a plausible explanation or compare notes to provide authorities with helpful leads? Everything Eric and Lisa were able to discover about DJ's last night on Earth was frustratingly elusive and unclear. Depending on who was asked, DJ left the party with Trevor or with someone in a blue car for a short time or he didn't leave at all. Depending on who was asked, there was a fight at the party between Catherine Boyd and her boyfriend, Steve Creel, or there wasn't a fight. Some said DJ was involved in the fight. Others said he wasn't involved. Confusing, right? According to most attendees, a man named Steve Creel did leave the party with two friends, Michael Arana and Dalton Riley, around 11 o'clock p.m. But why he left also depends on who is asked. Creel either left because of the fight or because he left to relieve a babysitter he had hired for his son. Depending on who is asked, the three returned to the house later that evening or they stayed at Creel's home in Ridgeville. Once again, there was zero consensus. 
about anything. And it was about to get even more confusing. Trevor McGee left the party at some point to pick up his girlfriend, whose shift at the Waffle House in Somerville, South Carolina, ended at 4 o'clock a.m. Depending on who is asked, Trevor left at midnight, or he left at 1.30 a.m. Trevor told authorities DJ was asleep in a chair, and he shook him awake to let him know he was leaving. What is known is at some point after midnight, DJ moved to sleep in Ashley Adams' single bed. According to Adams, when she decided to go to bed, she woke him up and asked him to move to the couch. DJ thought he was being asked to leave the house and became upset with Adams, so he left the residence at some point following this argument on foot. Both Adams and Catherine Boyd's accounts verified the argument between the two, but reports of the actual time of the argument and DJ's departure vary. Depending on who was asked, DJ left the home at some point between 1 o'clock and 3 o'clock a.m. What is known is that when DJ left the party, he had a backpack and a cell phone with just 3% battery life remaining. He was never seen again alive. As Lisa and Eric were haunted by more and more questions, the investigators, many who knew them personally, seemed satisfied by the mess of half-truths and implausibilities presented by the partygoers. It was almost as if the entire investigation was a collective shrug. The day after the Dorchester investigation got underway, the family received an anonymous phone call about DJ's death, asking if they were related to Daniel Smith. The caller said that DJ was murdered and that they overheard some of DJ's co-workers talking about murdering him, adding that, quote, the people who killed him drove a truck that said pleasant place landscaping, end quote. If his mother's heart was stopped by the few vague words from the police scanner about a body on the railroad tracks, the failures of this investigation were like a lightning bolt, shocking her into action she never thought she'd have to take. Originally content to leave the detective work to her husband, Lisa now found herself in another position, actively investigating the mysterious death of her only son. You've been listening to Fitz Files, a true crime and corruption podcast written, directed, and produced by Fitz News, the team that first broke the Murdoch Murders Crime and Corruption Saga and the Cheer Incorporated Sex Abuse Scandal. I'm Will Folks, and along with producer and lead investigator Jen Wood, Special Projects Director Dylan Nolan, researcher Callie Lyons, and the rest of the team, we are bringing you this series of investigative reports in which we uncover layers of truth lurking beneath the surface, offering exclusive interviews and insights, providing critical background and context, and revealing previously unreported details of these crimes. If you appreciate independent journalism, please support our work by subscribing to FitzNews.com, where you can view all of our original reporting, browse case files, and be the first to receive breaking news on all the stories we cover. Your support makes this podcast possible. That's F-I-T-S- N-E-W-S dot com. And while you're at it, please like us on the podcast platform of your choice and consider leaving a review.